Welcome to the Power of Perspective podcast with your host, Stephen Ritchie. In today's episode, we delve into the fascinating world of heart MRIs with our special guest, Stephen Germer, a PhD candidate specializing in the field. Join us as we explore the intricacies of heart MRIs, their applications, and the insights they offer into cardiovascular health. So sit back, relax, and prepare to expand your perspective on heart MRIs. Stephen, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good, Steve. Tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, everybody in podcast land. I am a PhD student at the University of Cape Town, where I'm busy doing a, a degree in biomedical engineering. I also work at a place called Cubic, which stands for the Cape University's Body Imaging Center, which is, as far as I know, the only research MRI institute in, on the entire African continent. So when we think of like medical imaging, the, kind of the first thing most people's minds will go to is like going to the hospital because they've broken their arm and they get an x-ray, like the yeah. first thing that happens when they walk through the door. Or, or maybe like if they're married and they're expecting a kid and they'll go have an ultrasound or they, their partner will go have an ultrasound. So those are like the more common medical imaging modalities I feel that people are more used to the idea of. Like x-ray kind of feels very similar to like a normal picture, right? You just, you, you know, they take a, they flash a picture and somehow you can see the bones underneath the skin. And with ultrasound, you sort of get the idea that there's this weird little probe that they're sticking into the side of you. <laughs> and somehow magically it can see the inside of you and uh, just through sound. But obviously we can't hear that sound. Whereas with MRI, it's very, very different. So MRI, which stands for magnetic resonance imaging, involves the sort of three key concepts that its name would suggest, magnets, resonance, and imaging. Basically, it's a, it's a big magnet, a very, very big magnet, very powerful magnet, very expensive magnet, that uh, when we put a patient inside this large magnet, there are these things inside of all humans called protons, right? It's the, the sort of uh, nucleus of of hydrogen, right, protons. Um, and when we put people in this big magnet, their hydrogen protons will tend to align with the direction of the magnetic field. So in this case, we have a big magnet that has a very um, homogeneous. Yeah. So it's a big field, a big magnetic field that's the same everywhere and points in one specific direction, okay? So when the person goes in, to the magnet, their spins or protons will align in the direction of the magnetic field, okay? Which is like, why? Just go with it, it does. Okay? For science. <laughs> for science, it's just, it's a natural, naturally occurring phenomenon. The reason for it is because your protons act like little magnets. So when it's in a bigger magnetic field, it aligns along the direction of the main magnetic field. Okay, so once that's happened, you've just now you've just got a magnetized person, right? You don't actually have any imaging yet. So that's where the, the, the R in MRI comes in, the resonance. So another weird quirk of nature is that when you have a person inside a magnet with all their spins, protons aligned along the main magnetic field, they tend to process around the main magnetic field. And what I mean by process is that they kind of spin around it. So if, if you think of like a spinning top and you, you spin the spinning top 
and it will spin at a specific frequency, but it'll also kind of wobble a little bit. So that's what precession is, essentially. And they precess at a very specific frequency. So depending on the strength of the magnet of the MRI, these spins will precess faster or slower. At a, but the point is it's a very specific frequency that, you, that we can calculate very, very, very directly. At an atomic level is this happening. It doesn't affect the makeup of, of, your, of your person. You will still continue to be able to move around as normal. So yeah, they spin at a specific frequency. So the resonance part of MRI comes in because we know this frequency, we can match this frequency with a radio frequency pulse. So we have a large coil that we can produce a radio frequency pulse at a specific frequency that is matched to the frequency of these spins. Um, that frequency is called the Larmor frequency, in case anyone cares. When we match those two things together, we can basically add energy into the system only through this resonance condition. If these frequencies aren't matched, there's no way to like interact with, with these spins, right? You have to have this matched frequency. That's the resonance part. That's why it's so important, right? It's, it's the second letter in MRI. That's how important it is. So from this, this matching of frequencies, we can add energy into the system. And when we can add energy into the system, the system can, the system being the body in this case, will then basically these spins will start to go, they'll be flipped out of the direction of the field. This is probably getting a little bit too into the, into the weeds of it, but essentially what you're doing is you're adding energy into the system. And then once you stop adding energy into the system via this RF pulse, the spins will tend to realign the main magnetic direction and in doing so release energy, right? Because now they're, they're at this higher energy state. They want to return to that equilibrium that they were at earlier. And what they do then is that they release this, this magnetic energy, okay? Then <laughs> you have another set of coils that are listening, quote unquote, for this magnetic energy that they release, okay? Those coils are again tuned to the specific frequency of the Larmor frequency, and they can pick up this energy released by the body and they can sort of, they pick up energy, they can decode it back into um, an image and then that image can be shown to the person and they can see inside their body. And that, that's the very, I know, that I know that wasn't the basics of MRI, but that's the fundamentals of MRI. You have this MRI now, but what does that actually look like? Like visually, what do you have? Mm. You have a picture of an x-ray, like oh, you have a bunch of Oh, the, the image itself? Yes. Okay. I mean, the image itself will kind of, will look like the inside of a person, I guess, in black and white, because obviously yeah. it can't, it doesn't, it can't do color. Yes, um, you, yes. can, you, you can pretend. I mean, the machine, okay, maybe we should start there. Yes. The machine itself looks like a big donut, but a, a long donut. So if, if you've ever seen a CT scanner, that, that looks like a ring, right? Like a normal donut would. An MRI basically looks like that, but sort of extended outwards okay so that like a the length of a human body sort of thing so you could fit a person inside of it yeah so it looks like a, a big ring and um it will and it's loud it's much louder than most um other um imaging modalities but yeah the actual image itself kind of just looks like not not at all like an x-ray because x-rays sort of everything is superimposed on on top of itself so you can't really 
figure out what's you know you, you, if you see the if you see the the spine you can also see the heart and the lung and the rib cage and everything in between but in MRI because it's a tomographic um, modality meaning that you get slices so rather than this sort of projection radiography which is what x-ray is where where um, x-rays are projected through something and you get an image on the other side MRIs create tomographic images where it's like single slices basically so each slice is the representation of what that part of the body would look like you know at each point like it's not squished down it's the actual thing so like if i were to cut you in half okay. and have a look at you from you know let's say from the top down and you know you could see i could see the let's say your lungs and your spine and your rib cage and your heart and all these things separately from one another squished down on top of one another the person they obviously arrive into the room mm -hmm. and now mm -hmm. what what happens to them as an overview like, like what, what actually what's the process, process? Yeah. yeah okay basically you will go down into a room somewhere in your in the basement of the of the building um, the reason for that is that the MRI machine is very 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 heavy um, and so it cannot be put on a floor that doesn't have very very strong supports so usually it'll be somewhere in a basement or on the ground floor um, just a fun fact. So basically you and you go to this place, let's say you're coming to Cubic where I work, you will be greeted by our, our lovely um, administrative assistant Pili, who will basically guide you towards the back of the building um, and you will sit there and once one of our research staff uh, is ready for you, they will come and do our sort of MRI uh, assessment form, I guess you could call it. We're basically we screen patients to make sure that they will be safe inside the MRI because safety is very very it's paramount at, um, in MRI it's a big magnet big magnets uh, like bits of metal so if a patient is walking into the room with bits of metal on them the magnet will find them even if the patient doesn't know that they have any on them the magnet will know so it's part of our responsibility to make sure that these patients are aware of the risks not there's no real risks in terms of like radiation or anything like that but in terms of knowing that they need to be you need to be careful don't walk in there with your cell phone out don't walk in there with hairpins you know these sort of like little things that a lot of people wouldn't really think of so yeah they go there they will have the screening, they'll be screened to make sure that they're safe to go in the MRI. They'll get changed in hospital gown. Um, and then they will be taken into the MRI room. So that's this big, well, not, not even that really that big, which is where the MRI is housed. Uh, obviously, before they go in, we double check them again to be like, you sure you don't have any coins in your pocket? You don't have a wallet or you don't have your glasses on or like take your earrings out, that sort of thing. Um, and then they'll go in into this room and that's where the MRI is and one of our radiographers, our people that do the actual radi um, MRI imaging will sort of take them to the bed, have them lie down on this bed and uh, position them, put whatever coils they might need to use on them. So for cardiac MRI, uh, we use um, what's called a body coil, which is basically like this white um, piece of plastic, I guess, with some coils in them that you kind of put over the chest of the patient. Okay, it doesn't look like anything just from the outside, but basically what it is is a bunch of loops of wire housed in a piece of plastic that we can then put over this patient. 
Um, and the reason we want to do that is because when what I was saying earlier about listening for the the sound or the, the, the energy that our spins release during MRI, that's what this coil is doing. And the closer it is to those um, spins, the, the better the quality of the image will be at the end of it. Um, so yeah, that's why we put a coil over their chest. They will will also have um, an ECG monitor to monitor their heartbeat. And basically, yeah, after that point, they're, they're kind of strapped down at this point. So they're not really going to be moving too much. And we just kind of make them comfortable, put in earplugs because it's loud, as I said earlier. And just sort of, yeah, you stick them in the scanner and then you scan. Yeah, that's, kind so, of, that's kind of it. So it's, it's safe. It's quite a safe oh, sort of invasive thing. Has there been any sort of Grey's Anatomy type stories? So something memorable in that process of patient comes in. Yeah. So not thankfully at our at our institute, no. the the closest The closest we've had to a close call is that a, that is that one of the research students um, who was involved in a different research project, not directly affiliated with Cubic. It walked into the the MRI cabin. Um, had some loose change in their pocket and as I said the MRI knows when you walk into the MRI room with loose change in your pocket and it was pulled out of their pocket and rocketed across the room towards the scanner and there was a patient on the bed at the time uh, I don't think yeah no one was injured at the time I believe our research one of our research um, staff our radiographer was hit on the hand but not you know, wasn't wasn't horribly ripped off or anything, just was injured. So she went to the hospital, but she was fine, thankfully. But yeah, that that's that was the, the closest call we've had to something truly bad happening. Because it, it can happen incredibly easily. There's been stories, well not even stories, cases. I think it happened in India, some, uh, somewhere in India, that a uh, one of the hospital staff brought an oxygen canister into the MRI room and these oxygen canisters are pretty heavy made of you know metal as you might imagine and again the MRI knows when there's metal in the room it's it just it's, it just, it's, 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 it's magnetic attraction right uh, it will it will find anything and now this incredibly heavy full canister of oxygen pulled across the room at you know um, very very high speed into a patient killing them so yeah it's it's incredibly important that anybody going into the MRI room is briefed on what it means to do that and they understand that they cannot go in there with bits of metal on them and they need to be ultra paranoid before they walk through that door they can't just treat it like any other room in the hospital it's a very specific room that you need to know what you're doing when you go in there and obviously part of part of our responsibility is making sure people understand that because we can't rely on people to understand that. You have to be the one to explain that. You have to be um, responsible and be like, what's in, the, what's in your pocket? Is your phone there? Take a few earrings, you know, etc. Cardiac MRIs, the key advantages of this and limitations. That's a good question. So yeah, ca cardiac MRI obviously being sort of like a niche within a niche of MRI. Uh, obviously, we're interested in looking at the cardiovascular system, right? The heart and uh, to some degree the lungs and, and the major vessels of, of the body. So basically, the, the, the reason the use case for cardiac MRI 
is oftentimes when x-ray or ct doesn't or, or ultrasound doesn't fully answer a clinical question right like they they might have some question about let's say lesions in in the heart like they might say that okay we were assessing the mitral valve of the heart and we we assessed it in ct we assessed it in ultrasound but we still haven't answered our question okay let's send them for an mri so the benefit of mri is that it has pretty good spatial resolution so you can get pretty clear pictures right you know usually like um on the order of a few millimeters by a few millimeters so let's say like one millimeter by one millimeter two millimeters by two millimeters so pretty good resolution and it also has good temporal resolution so not only spatial resolution but also temporal resolution which I, by which i mean that you can produce images in a, in a few milliseconds um, and you can produce a number of images in in a few milliseconds and that has benefits in cardiac mri in that you can produce basically moving images of the heart beating in situ, right, without having to horribly dissect somebody and have a look, right? You can do this while the patient is sitting there. The, the ability to do that is obviously a really huge, uh, hugely useful in cardiac MRI, as you might imagine. Being able to look at a beating heart in, in basically real time. See, you can imagine how important that would be in well, any sort of medical field. The other part of MRI that's very, very useful and is pretty unique, almost completely unique to MRI, is the ability to characterize tissue. Okay, uh, And by, by that, what I mean is the ability to look at different tissues and kind of figure out what they're composed of or like what makes them up. Whereas in normal medical imaging, you kind of look at muscle and bone and heart um, heart tissue and lung tissue and they all kind of just look like gray blobs of varying different shades and there's no real like information in that it's just that's what that's how dense it is basically like that's the density of it is more what determines its its color or its black and whiteness whereas in MRI you can tune different sort of timings in these uh, MRI um, gradients these uh, pulse sequences that we play out to produce these images. We can alter the time of these different sequences to produce differently weighted images. And by weighted, I'm talking about T1 and T2 weighted. And now I think most, most people won't know what the hell that means. Basically there's these two concepts in, in MRI called T1 and T2, very cleverly called time one and time two, because you know somebody obviously really was working was working overtime coming up with good names yep. thing one and thing, thing one and thing two these are these different relaxation parameters basically every single tissue has an associated t1 and t2 time with it or like a range of t2 t1 and t2 times they're kind of related to like what kind of tissue it is is it a viscous tissue is it sticky or is it more fluid is it quite solid is it very dense is it not that dense is it surrounded by a lot of other tissue? Is it quite sparse? So that these different parts, yeah, these these different these different sort of things will determine the T1 and the T2 of these different tissues. That's all. That's all you really need to understand about that. Knowing that all these different tissues have different associated T1s and T2s means that we can take these different pulse sequences and tune them with specific timings to kind of highlight these characteristics in inside tissue. So the, the most normal use case for this is often in the brain, 
where um, they'll be looking at sort of gray matter and white matter and CSF in the brain. Uh, and gray matter, white matter, and CSF all have very different T1s and T2 times. So you can basically exploit the fact that you can just sort of make slight changes in the timing of pulse sequences to highlight the differences in these tissues. So you can make the gray matter brighter than all the other surrounding tissue to look for parts of that tissue that are damaged and you can and then you can just make a slight tweak and now you can look at the white matter and look for damage in that and you can make a slight tweak and look for CSF flow and whether there's any voids or anything like that. That's the incredible power of MRIs, it's able to do that. You can look at different tissues, change the contrast of the, Im of the image pretty much on the fly depending on what you're actually looking for. Another really interesting part about MRI is it's a cardiac MRI specifically is the ability to assess blood flow velocities like you're able to look at um, blood flow through like the aorta through the pulmonary arteries or any vessel really and figure out how fast it's flowing from that you can determine you know uh, volumes um, moving through the aorta you can look at regurgitation within the aorta all these different things basically the questions that can be asked and that can be answered by MRI are sort of numerous, incredibly numerous. Where it struggles, however, is in its very, it's in its very nature, unfortunately. So with, with things like X-ray and CT, you kind of get an image immediately, like, like a normal camera, right? You click and that's, you get the photo, right? Like there's a, it's a very small delay between the click and the image being produced. With MRI, it's more like you take a click and then the first line is read out, and then the second line is read out, and then the third line is read out, and so on and so forth until you build up a full image. So it's a, it's a bit of a longer process in that sense. Like it still happens within a couple tens of milliseconds, hundreds of milliseconds. But, it, well, I guess it also depends on what kind of sequence we're talking about. But let's say for the sake of argument, we're trying to produce like a T1 weighted image. We might have a very long uh, repetition time, so basically that's the time between each of those sort of line readouts, you could kind of think of it as that. So if you have a very long time between those line readouts, you know, in the order of a few seconds, you can imagine that if the patient is moving from one line to the next line to the next line to the next line, you're going to end up with something that looks horribly blurry, right? So in MRI, the, the sort of um, main enemy, the enemy number one of MRI is movement. So movement of any kind, right? Uh, especially patient movement. So like when they're uncomfortable on the bed and they feel like they need to sort of jiggle around to find their comfort spot, uh, no good, obviously, it messes up our image. So cardiac MRI is hit by that threefold. And the reason that it is, is because we're trying to image the heart which some of you may know moves it beats periodically but it does beat unless you're a vampire unless you're a vampire but that i don't i don't even know if if uh i mean there aren't many mirrors in mri but i don't know if they'd even show up maybe they wouldn't show up but yeah the heart beats which is a problem some might say some might say that it's a good thing that it beats but i personally think that it's a terrible thing that it beats um and then the other problem is that Patients have to breathe, I've also been told. So not only will they sort of wiggle around and shift their bodies, but they also have the audacity to have to breathe during the exam. And their heart's constantly beating. Very, very annoying. So 
that is one of the major limitations in cardiac MRI is that we have to deal with these three movements. So obviously you can deal with patient movement quite simply by asking them not to move and making them comfortable so that they feel like they don't have to move. You can deal with breathing by telling them not to breathe for limited times, you know, 10 seconds at a time, maybe you can get away with. Um, and then for the heartbeat, you can deal with it via ECG, right? You can track the sort of uh, normal cardiac cycle and you can kind of time your scan to happen within the cardiac cycle and sort of so that each part of the cardiac cycle is repeatable. So you can produce the same image, you know, from beat to beat to beat to beat to beat. Um, and yeah, that limits the amount of time that we can actually spend producing this image. Mainly the, the, the breath hold will do that, right? If we can only scan for 10 seconds at a time, that means we have 10 seconds to produce an image, uh, which, is, which sounds like it should be long enough. And it is, it is long enough to produce a, quite a, a large set of images, in fact. But it limits the, the, the achievable resolution of the image. It, it limits our signal-to-noise ratio that's achievable. Yeah, there's basically a lot of choices that have to be made sort of cutbacks, I guess you could call it, or like, uh, there's limitations. Like you have, you have to make cuts to certain parts of the image in order to make sure that it will, the image quality, to make sure that it fits within an acceptable length of time. Is any of the innovations that are maybe coming through the pipeline or are hoped for related to stopping these three factors from limiting you to certain resolutions? So there's a lot of, ongoing research into basically kind of ignoring patient breathing and I, I use ignoring very loosely basically they're trying to how, how can I how can I describe it they basically oversample everything they like instead of just trying to image in a very short amount of time they will go the, the complete opposite direction and just sort of image non-stop right they might just image non-stop whether the patient's breathing or their heart's beating or whatever it may be um, and then from that huge cloud of data that they've now produced they will kind of try and pull out the sort of salient bits that are of, of importance and kind of bin those bits together and produce images that way which is like an interesting way of approaching it it obviously has a lot of downsides in that it's requires a lot of data to be collected and then the post-processing to produce the images obviously takes a long time as well uh, and it's most of most of these sequences are still like works in progress that are being produced by like specific universities so not everybody has access to these different techniques so yeah that's those are some ways that people are dealing with it uh, in general in MRI acceleration or acceleration of MRI sequences is like a huge field of study. There's already a lot of very cool techniques that are in common use to reduce the length of MRI scans. If you like, you click and you fill out a line and then you fill out another line, you fill out another line, you fill out another line. You, most of you will think, okay, you have to fill out every single line and, and to be able to see the whole picture. But in MRI, there's some cool acceleration techniques which allow you to take advantage of some very cool um, spatial frequency domain, like, uh, yeah, basically you can take advantage of the fact that some data in the spatial frequency domain is kind of redundant or it's, it's copied. So you can kind of fill up, let's say half of your image and then kind of 
turn it over and just copy it again and you can produce a full image that way um, which obviously means that you can like capture half of an image but get a full image out of it if you think of it that way um, you can also take advantage of the fact that some of the coils have multiple different coils so they're sensitive to different parts of the body at different you know at different positions right they have positional sensitivity so you can take advantage of the fact that these different coils see different parts of the body at different times and you can produce images faster that way as well. There is a lot of, of studies of how to reduce the effect of, of these things. Acceleration techniques being the number one one. Um, my project that I'm working on for my PhD is looking at doing, the scan, doing some scans, specifically cardiac DTI, uh, using free breathing techniques. So free breathing obviously means that patient is just breathing, right? Like you are right now, hopefully. And what we try to do then is track the motion of the patient's diaphragm being that sort of this little piece of tissue between the, the abdomen and the chest that sort of moves up and down periodically with breath. So we can track the motion of that diaphragm and relate that motion to the movement of the heart. So when, the per when someone breathes, their heart moves at the same time, right? Uh, so basically, if we track the motion of the diaphragm, we can also track the motion of the heart. And from that, we can kind of compensate for the fact that the heart is sort of moving as the patient's breathing. And we can kind of always keep it in focus when we're taking our pictures. And so what are some of the key sort of research uh, areas that um, your PhD is sort of exploring? I'm doing a cardiac DTI sequence with a free breathing in a free breathing approach so i so let's let's start with cardiac dti so cardiac dti is again a niche within a niche within a niche of cardiac mri it's uh, a sequence where we can look at diffusion so what dti stands for is diffusion tensor imaging there's a lot of acronyms in mri so so diffusion tensor imaging is basically a method of looking at the diffusion of water in in the body. So diffusion being kind of like the random motion that water, like that molecules in water make. There's this famous experiment. So basically this, this chap poured uh, pollen into water and the, the pollen, like the, the, the tiny little specks of pollen would sort of randomly move around the water even though the water was still. So like the water is perfectly still but they would still randomly travel around uh, within within the water. And that's due to the diffusion of water, which is random movement basically of the water. So diffusion tensor imaging in, in, in uh, cardiovascular MRI is interested in looking at the diffusion of water in heart muscle. And the reason that that's kind of interesting and cool is that you can use it to kind of look at like the fibers of the of the heart you can look at like the architecture almost of the heart so you can look at how the different muscle fibers or myocytes are arranged and how they come to form the heart and the different uh, direction that they face in different parts of the heart and as they contract what changes happens to them over time and all, all these very cool and interesting things. So that's one aspect of DTI. Uh, another aspect of it is that you might, or in principle, are able to look at 
whether these fibers are in disarray, whether there's uh, damage to the muscle uh, of the heart. So you can look for um, you know, patients that may have had cardiac, uh, cardiac arrest or heart attacks, or if they've had some other uh, lesion to their heart or some other disease that's caused their heart muscle to change in its nature, you can use cardiac DTI to look at those changes and see what changes they make to the diffusion of water. So basically areas where heart muscle may have died or been replaced by this, fibro this fibrotic tissue, you can be, you'll be able to see those changes. And the reason that that's really cool is that the normal way or the most common way that it's done in cardiac MRI at the moment is using this technique called late gadolinium imaging. And late gadolinium enhancement is a byproduct of this contrast agent called gadolinium. So gadolinium is a, is a heavy metal on the periodic table and it is used as a contrast agent because it's a T1 shortening contrast agent. Again, don't worry what that means. But basically it means that things that are diseased will kind of take up this gadolinium and have a shorter T1. So basically what that means is that if you take a normal T1 weighted image, you will see normal healthy myocardium or muscle tissue. It will look black. And if it's unhealthy, it means that it's got gadolinium in it, which means that it'll look white, basically. It's still an open question about whether or not this gadolinium contrast is perfectly healthy or perfectly safe for, for patients to have. Uh, it's, it's not been shown to have any large debilitating or any sort of major problems with it, but there are still some questions about the safety and the use of gadolinium. So any sort of um, technique that doesn't require the use of it may be useful in the, in the future. And in this uh, research, are there any sort of new techniques or like breakthroughs that you've sort of taken advantage of in the field? I, I don't know. I don't know necessarily about breakthroughs, but my, my project is, is, is quite cool in that it hasn't really, it's, it's a different approach to, what a lot of other groups are doing. Where again, like I said previously, where they're trying to not have to worry about doing breath hold and being limited by the amount of time um, that a breath hold takes and how long you can image during that breath hold. So yeah, my, my project basically doing this um, tracking of the diaphragm is just another approach to being able to like allow the patient to breathe normally while we're imaging and therefore not having to worry so much about how long we can scan for. It's more about like, okay, now that we can kind of scan as long as the patient is, you know, breathing quite happily, we can kind of just scan and scan and scan and, and get kind of the best quality that's achievable. Uh, obviously there's still, there's still some downsides that uh, my, my project has uncovered in, in doing this, but uh, yeah, it's at least, it's still a, an interesting approach to doing it. Yeah, every challenge you encounter is an opportunity to learn and develop the Exactly. Field. Cardiac MRIs, the, what type of things do they generally pick up? A patient has a certain ailment and they're interested in finding out what the disease is that's causing that ailment, or whether there's a research question of patients that have a known ailment or a known disease, and they're trying to figure out what effect that has on the heart. So obviously there's a lot of diseases in South Africa specifically that are well studied in some regards but not well studied in other regards so one of those being hiv so obviously hiv being very prevalent 
in the southern in southern Africa means that we're kind of in the exact right place to study it. So uh, a lot of our scans or our, our research will be about HIV. What effect does HIV have on the heart, you know, or what is the effect of taking antiretrovirals from a young age on the heart, you know, uh, what effect is there if the mother is on antiretrovirals and then the baby is born to a mother with, uh, but without ever having HIV, but being exposed to uh, antiretrovirals at, at a young age. So that's, that's, that's one research area that's still currently ongoing. There's also a lot of TB in South Africa. So that also has effects on obviously lung scarring, but it can also have effects on the heart. So that's another open research question about like what effects does long-term exposure to TB do to the heart? Any other sort of cardiac um, problem can be investigated with MRI, you know, whether it's cardiomyopathies, so like um, basically changes to the cardiac muscle, uh, congenital heart diseases, so uh, basically children being born with cardiac abnormalities, and then and then anything else, right? Uh, heart attacks and basically any anything yeah. that can go wrong with the heart, you can have a look at it with MRI. How do you envision um, the future of MRIs? Are there sort of emerging trends or you know potential? applications that are quite exciting yeah no, there's there's a lot of really interesting things going on in mri there's a lot of obviously there's always a lot of focus on making mris faster like scans making scans faster cardiac dti is is quite an emerging topic still there's a lot of interest in that there was also something which uh, i remember reading about a while ago which was called uh, mri fingerprinting which was which was like this absolutely bizarre concept where basically you could play out like completely random uh, pulse sequences and like the timings were like almost completely random and from all this randomness and weird shaped gradients and all these very strange things you could produce images you could produce images of great quality but also you could get T1-weighted images, T2-weighted images, proton density-weighted images, all at the same time. Like, rather than having to, you know, do one one scan, then the next scan, then the next scan, then the next scan, you would do this one weird-sounding crazy scan and somehow produce all of these images all at once, um, exploiting some, you know, features of MRI that, to me, is very cool still. Yeah, it sounds very exciting. Do you find that... Uh... There's a space for collaborations and even interdisciplinary approaches. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. At, you know, to um, expand away from just the idea of this isolated sort of bubble. MRI is crazy in that, right? Like, it's 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 so interdisciplinary. Like, it's I mean, it's literally called biomedical engineering, right? It's it's the it's the in, it's the intersection of biology, medicine, and engineering, like literally. So that if that's inter, in, interdisciplinary even of itself. But on top of that, it's a medical imaging device, right? At the end of the day, it's it's a device that we use to produce medical images. But it's such an advanced piece of hardware that it just can't help itself but be interesting to physicists and engineers just sort of on the face of it. You know, just looking at the thing, it's like this incredible piece of equipment that uses such cool engineering concepts to produce images. So like if you're just a if you're if you're a clinician 
you can just be interested in the fact that it can produce these images and you know there's so many different avenues that that can take but if you're a physicist or an engineer like myself you can look at it and you can be like well how does it produce those images and like what can we do to make its ability to produce those images more robust or different or like how can we investigate this different technique and so on and so forth so that's one part of mri that's incredibly interdisciplinary another part is is the is the actual research that can be done with mri so i gave a a, a brief talk the other day at one of our departmental seminars just about what we do at cubic um, and in doing so i produced this little slide where we were kind of trying to track which different universities and um, faculties and departments within UCT that we've worked with uh, and in doing so uh, <clears throat> basically like obviously within health sciences we worked with a number of different departments you know everything from sort of child health to biomedical engineering to human biology and so on and so forth but then we also worked with people from uh, the engineering and built environment faculties. So like we worked with civil engineering students and chemical engineering students. We've worked with obviously humanities um, and psychology is obviously a really huge thing in MRI. Looking at like human psychology is obviously intrinsically linked with the brain. So uh, MRI is, is, is very well suited to looking at the brain in all different functions, not just in what does the brain look like, but also how does the brain function when posed with a specific task to do. And it's, we've also worked with Faculty of Commerce, which, is, which I thought was quite strange. It was one of the departments of economics or something like that, where they did a, uh, a study on, was it um, psychoeconomics or something like that, but basically like the psychology of economics. I wasn't directly involved, but it sounded quite fascinating. So yeah, it, it's, it's, it's inherently interdisciplinary, because like, basically if there's any question about how does the body act in a specific situation, MRI is there to answer that question. Yeah, and you, you briefly sort of glanced over um, brain MRI. So what I gather is it's sort of used to determine what areas activate under different behavior and how do they determine that? that? So obviously MRI, I, I feel like when people think of MRI, if they do think of MRI, they usually think of like, like seeing those weird images of like, person like discovers that they can now see their dreams or like we've discovered that we can see dreams and using an MRI or it, it all sounds very cool and it sounds like maybe a little bit overblown but yeah it, it, MRI of the brain is obviously like a really cool topic it's sort of like I kind of at least at cubic it's the main thing that we do there like the majority of time is spent scanning the brain and what we're doing in neuro-MRI is looking at not only the sort of structure of the, of the brain, what, is it, what does it look like, but also like what's it composed of, but also asking what does the brain do when faced with a specific task, okay? So that's kind of what you're asking, like how does it do that? And the answer is complicated, but basically what it boils down to is that when you are given a task to do, the theory is is that the vasculature in your brain will kind of pull more blood to that specific region that's performing the task, right? So if you're performing some sort of speech task, then the blood in the brain will be pulled towards the speech center of the brain. And if you're performing a memory task, 
the blood will be pulled towards the memory part of the brain. And that's the basic concept of it. It's, it's this thing called blood oxygenation level dependence, BOLD. Um, and that, that, that kind of sequence can be used to look at where more blood is than other parts of the brain, if you get what I'm saying. So like when you're in a task and you have to, to think about something, that part of the brain will sort of light up because more blood is being pulled there than some than other regions of the brain. In the future, how would you envision the sort of integration of this cardiac MRIs further into you know routine clinical practice? Yeah, that it's it certainly will be challenging. MRI in general is a very expensive modality. It's a very it has a lot of expenses going into getting an MRI. They're very, very expensive pieces of equipment. On top of that, there's constant running costs of, of having an MRI. There's a lot of costs associated with having MRI that a lot, specifically in South Africa, a lot of uh, clinics and hospitals just simply wouldn't have access to the funds to do it. On top of that, there's also a great there's, there's a very limited number of radiographers and radiologists who are specialized enough in cardiac MRI that they would even be able to do the scanning. So uh, one part of what we do at Cubic that I think is a very important part is obviously we try to teach cardiac MRI. We try to teach MRI in general as well to um, aspiring radiographers and radiologists who might be interested in the field. Uh, and we do that through various workshops and lectures that we give throughout the year in a lot of complex cases where MRI will, can often answer these questions that sim simply are not answerable by other modalities. Kind of what that requires, I should say, is that these doctors and clinicians outside of our field know that it's an available resource. Like, I think oftentimes what will scare people away from MRI or make them, uh, you know, skeptical, not skeptical of its use, but like unwilling to use it is that they don't understand what it's for. So I, I think in, in that regard, it's important that uh, they are basically made, <laughs> they're made aware of its existence, I guess is probably a good start and made aware of its, its uses and its benefits, you know, how it can, how it has incredible uh, means of answering very complex questions in an incredibly safe and non-intrusive manner. That's what our research is about, right? It's looking at what we consider normal people, normal and healthy individuals, and then comparing them with a disease and then seeing what these changes are. And then knowing what these changes are means that we can affect actual clinical change, right? We can go to the doctor and say, oh, look at this. There's, there's this change to the, you know, on the heart. They can receive surgery now, or they can receive some medicine that will make that better. That's what the ultimate goal is, is to change patient care, make them well again. Is there a most common situation that an MRI is used? Any sort of disease of the heart where they can't answer the question through the sort of primary modality. So like if they can't answer it with a CT, or they can't answer it with a, an ultrasound, then they'll come to MRI. We're, we're, not, we're not the first port of call most times. It will be the, a secondary or tertiary modality. Just because, again, it's, it's expensive. There's not a lot of cardiac MRIs out there. And there's also not a lot of people with the expertise to read those images and understand what they're looking at. So it's, yeah. And on the new front, um, you know, artificial intelligence has developed 
and it's gotten a lot of media attention. So, you know, machine learning and such techniques have um, slowly trickled into the, well, almost everywhere it feels these days. And do you see the current and future role of it being quite prolific in cardio MRI field? I've been wondering about this myself as well. I've had the other day, there were some visiting professors who were asking a similar question. I wasn't quite sure how to, to answer it, but I think where the the major use case for AI would be in in MRI and in cardiac MRI specifically is in the, the post-processing of images. So what I tended to do a lot of my time was post-processing images, so like extracting data from images. So whether it's volumetric data of the heart or functional data or whatever it might be, I feel like AI would be would probably be quite useful in that regard and to some degree it already is there's a some of the software that we use already has some ai based tools that help with segmentation of the heart and things like that so that feels like a really good use case for it already like simplifying post-processing speeding it up to get results faster another potential use case for it is in the actual diagnosis of disease although that I am a little bit skeptical of because I don't necessarily trust that it will always get it right. It's not to say that a clinician will always get it right either. I, I think having a having an actual doctor looking at a set of images just gives you that little bit more comfort than knowing that it was fed through ChatGPT to <laughs> to guess what what the disease might be. No, but I I do think that there's probably in the future. It seems almost inevitable that it probably will become another tool that a clinician can use to like do some sort of diagnosis or assist with diagnosis. Whether or not it becomes the tool, like it, or it, it replaces the doctor, seems unlikely, but certainly like an assistive tool to help with diagnosis of disease and, and that sort of thing seems, yeah. seems very likely. Cost-wise, is technology going to downscale it to a more... As you said, not just in a basement and a more accessible <laughs> for, or, you know, what, what's the limitization factor on the accessibility of this technology mm. in terms of the future? Like, yeah. is it just locked in no, place or well, is there room for change? No, yeah, yeah. There's actually, there's actually some really cool stuff that's going on in the field of low field MR. So normal, uh, our normal MRI scanner is a very powerful magnetic field. Uh, three Tesla, but that wouldn't really mean much. It's very, very powerful. Tens of thousands of times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. A really cool field of research that's happening at the moment is in low field MR. So basically having these very small portable scanners that can be moved around the hospital with very low, mag low strength magnetic fields. So like on the order of, you know, 0.2 Tesla or something like that, like much smaller. Tens of times smaller, hundreds of times smaller sometimes. And the benefit there is that now the costs come down with that because now it's this portable device. It doesn't require these big rooms these uh, and these large Faraday cages in the rooms to make sure that it's safe and it doesn't require this ongoing need for the magnet to be constantly switched on. Basically, there's a lot of operational costs that are now removed with the fact that you can have this portable device. It still obviously is a big magnet, so there's, there's still uh, inherent uh, safety uh, concerns there. But for the most part, the fact that it cannot be moved around the hospital, kind of like an x-ray machine can be moved around the hospital, 
promises to open up that to, uh, open up that field to basically allow resource sort of limited settings to actually still have access to MRI. Yeah, so I, I feel like that to me seems like a really logical progression of how, of what MRI might become is that these little portable devices might end up in more hospitals or in more um, primary care, like more clinics. Or almost, almost in the way that x-ray is now, ultrasound is now, where it can be like almost a first line of defense. Like as soon as the patient shows up, they can get an MRI, you know, because they have this little MRI scanner sitting in, in, the, in the storage cabinets. Do you have any stories around sort of MRIs and heart MRIs, um, experiences, of you know particular interest or you know, memorable that you'd like to share? I mean the, the most memorable stuff that we often see is from the the clinical side and the reason for that is that often when you're doing clinical MRI you're, you're going to be scanning patients that are like very ill right like they have some uh, disease that's caused their heart to look very very strange. So a lot of the time um, when, when I've uh, experienced very like incredible moments in cardiac MRI is when we've had a case that's been scanned that is of like some crazy rare congenital defect. The one that I most recently remember seeing that was like completely blew my mind. Basically what it was is this person had what's called transposition of the, of the great vessels. So that basically means that their heart was kind of like switched around the outlets of the heart, so like the aorta and the pulmonary uh, arteries were switched around, like they were attached to different, the wrong parts of the heart. But then also the heart itself was switched around, like the left ventricle as, it's, as, as such was on the right side of the heart and the right ventricle was on the left side of the heart. So now the fact that the vessels were switched and then the heart was switched meant that now it was almost back in the right format <laughs> yeah, yeah two wrongs make yeah, a right yeah two wrongs make a right and then on top of that their like thoracic cavity was also switched around so like where your heart tends to point a little bit to the left theirs pointed to the right and their stomach and their liver were on the other sides of each other so yeah just it was it was just crazy to see because like all of these things worked together to kind of make not, it wasn't, a, I wouldn't by any stretch of the imagination call it a normal functioning heart, but the fact that these, <laughs> that these two incredibly rare congenital disorders occurred to make what looked like a normal heart just in a, just a mirror version. Right, that, that, yeah, that to me was crazy. Congenitally corrected transposition of the great artery, CCTGA. Which, I don't know, it's just cool, look it up, it, it looks really weird. Seems like it might break some of the rules of the heart, like... It, well, it, totally, it, totally, it totally does, Isn't but like somehow, marks? <laughs> somehow it works. Visual thing is what, to me, was the mind-blowing part of it. I'm sure there's a lot of um, problems associated with it. And the main one being that the fact that the left ventricle pumps into the pulmonary artery is not necessarily a good thing because it's a, a low pressure vessel being fed by a high pressure ventricle can cause dilatation of the of the pulmonary arteries i assume so that probably is not incredibly healthy but it's just the fact that like it looks just look you look at it and you're like oh that's a normal heart but then you look a bit closer and you're like that is not a normal heart <laughs> <laughs>
Any heartwarming stories? Heart, heartwarming. Moments that made a huge impact in someone's life. Well, there's been a, a lot of funny things that have happened in my own research. The the one that I, I remember, it's it's funny in retrospect. At the at the time, it was it made me feel really bad. But it was basically I was I've been trying to get um, patients to scan for my own research project. So finding these patients is, is quite a, is quite difficult. Um, and when, when I do find a patient, I, I'm often very happy and I'm, I want to, I want to get them in and scan them as soon as possible. So there was this one patient that I had, I had scanned and he had done very well and I was very pleased and I was happy with the results of it. And I sent him on his way and fast forward a couple, like a month or two later, I was, I was given another name or at least what I thought was another name of a patient. Um, and I called that patient and I asked them very specifically, is, is, is this, is this Mr. So-and-so? And he says, yeah, this is Mr. So-and-so. I was like, oh, okay, great. Would you like to come in for a cardiac MRI? And they were like, oh yeah, you know, that'd be great. And so on and so forth. And I booked them for a scan and sure enough, they came in. And when they came in, for whatever reason, this person was not Mr. So-and-so, but it was the original guy that I had scanned a couple months ago. And for whatever reason, when I had spoken to this man and said, are you Mr. So-and-so? And he said, yes, I'm Mr. So-and-so. He was just like, I don't know. I don't know why I said that. I'm not that person. But he still, he still came in and I was like, well, I can't scan you again, but also you've come all this way. So like, I need to you know, I need to make it right. And, you know, we, we always give our patients money for transport and things like that. But that was, yeah, that was, a, it was a deeply embarrassing moment for myself. Cause again, I just called this guy who had scanned like a month ago to come in and scan again. And like, he didn't even really seem to realize that this was what was happening. Yeah. Anyway, it was yeah. very funny, but that, he, was, he, was, he was a good sport about it. Yeah, yeah. I would have been a little panicky, like, Doc called you back. It's like, hmm, so we noticed some irregularities. Yeah. No, it was weird. Like, he, it, it, was, it was so strange. Like, he, I don't know if he realized, like, why I was calling him. Anyway, there's, some, there's something lost in the, in, the, uh, in the call there. Yeah. Yeah, that was quite funny. If you look up MRI cello or MRI cello yo-yo ma, this incredible video of them like scanning and the the sound that the scanner makes is basically like it sounds like this this famous um cello piece of music uh so yeah i would say go out and, and look at that because it's it's kind of cool and then read the paper about it because the paper is also obviously really cool well thanks for coming on it was really interesting to hear about your field an area that a lot of us probably know a lot less than we should. Yeah, no, I think most people know exactly as, as much as they should know about it, don't worry. I think I know too much about it, unfortunately. Nice. Well, all the best with your, the rest of your you know, PhD and the future. And yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. To the listeners out there, thanks for joining us. I hope it was interesting. And yeah, keep an eye out for the next one. Mm-hmm.